0: So Kathy started us off in Psalm 23 last week, a great overview. We'll be doing it again this week, concentrating on verses five and six. And next week, Jared Mackey from The Next Level Church will be a guest speaker here because a bunch of churches in the Denver area have committed during the summer to two things, doing Psalm 23 and swapping around pastors so that we get a taste of each other's styles and interests and, and show that we're unified here in the body. So I've got an opportunity this week and then I'll be doing this next week at Denver Community Church. So um, moving right into what we're about. There is some imagery in the Bible that can really be confusing when you're a kid, even when you're an adult. And I can remember in first grade when Sister Mary De Salle, Catholic school, anybody with me there? Yep. Um, taught us that Jesus was going to come back on the clouds. And I would walk out the door just looking, just worrying that it could be that day. Um, and that's, that's a funny one, but I think the funniest one was um, when our daughter, Rachel was about three, she was having a nightmare one night and dutiful mommy goes into her and dutiful Christian mommy assures her that Jesus is there to protect her. And she blurts out, that's no good. He's too little like, what do you mean he's too little? <laughs> Jesus lives in my heart, and that's too little. It's a big monster. So, and it was about at that point I thought, it is time to give up the Christian cliches with my kids and teach them like real people. But there's a verse here in Psalm 23 that right up into adulthood has just always struck me as, Being one of the most nonsensical descriptions I've ever seen. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I actually found a picture of this on online and and Dave would be happy to show it to us, wouldn't you, Dave? (laughs) But picture that literally. What is it gonna look like? It's coming. And there it is. That is exactly what I thought of this as. You know, this huge medieval night scene of fighting and gore and bloodshed and this exquisitely laid table in the most inappropriate place imaginable. And so given an opportunity to speak on Psalm 23, I thought, yeah, let's let's dive into this because somehow I think God might have an idea beyond my superficial connotation of what he's talking about. So now if we can go back, I would like us to read Psalm 23 together as a reminder. And you guys have been sitting a while, so we're all going to pretend we're in Russia right now. And in Russia, when it is announced you are going to read scripture, Ryan's grinning already, you rise to your feet to respect scripture. So stand up, stretch a little. This is your opportunity for the next 40 minutes or so. And let's read together Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Have a seat and continue to relax, I hope. Psalms. It's really pretty interesting when you think about it. Written over a period of maybe 800 years, Moses wrote a psalm. Some of the psalms were written after um, the Israelites returned from exile. And out of every song written for worship, 150 of them were immortalized in the word of God in our scripture. That's what I call top of the charts. And we get to look at one of them this week. This one, in particular, Psalm 23, seems like it's really, um, it's almost too happy. It's too calm but that's the orientation of some of the Psalms. Some of them are just acknowledging the goodness of God. Others of them, if you look, are definitely talking about horrific circumstances when the Psalmist, the writer, is totally disoriented. And still others talk about a period of great crisis and a recovery from it, a reorientation, coming back to an understanding of God. This one, yeah. It's a happy psalm, but it is not a complacent psalm. It is one that declares God victor in the midst of tremendous battles. It's not just a happy little bucolic scene of sheep wandering around the meadow and drinking as they like. It's a story of the shepherd king really having our backs and working on our behalf. The Psalms also, Psalm just means a song with musical accompaniment. And some of them are titled, this one is David's, and they were used in public worship. Now this one is not very embarrassing to have read in public worship as your words, your testimony, but think of something like Psalm 51, a Psalm of David, when Nathan confronted him after committing adultery with Bathsheba. And this is a song used in public worship. This king is a pretty vulnerable man. And I want to be a bit vulnerable with you tonight, tell a little bit of how this psalm impacted me in my life, and hopefully you too will be able to find yourself in this psalm. It's about the shepherd king. Um, You know, put that to God, put that to Jesus, however you want. But in in the verses we're going to look at now in verse 5 and 6, It shifts a little bit and the shepherd king becomes the host of a banquet. But we're going to keep in mind that as shepherd, there is constant care, constant provision, constant alertness, much like Kathy talked about last week. The shepherd went ahead of the sheep to make sure poison plants were pulled out, to make sure predators were driven back, to make sure that the landscape and the paths were safe. Because sheep are pretty dumb. Sheep are pretty habitual, and they will walk into danger unless the shepherd is constantly alert. So even as this banquet table is prepared in the presence of our enemies, it's being prepared by a shepherd king who has our back, has our best interest, and is ready to give us what we need for our well-being, very much aware that enemies are surrounding So this imagery in verse 5 in particular, the table in the presence of my enemies. If we took it, well, we we could take it as almost a a total denial of the crap that goes on in life. And uh, that accusation is sometimes made against Christians that we're absolutely unaware and we're pie in the sky and heaven by and by and we have no sense of reality or injustice or poverty. I don't think that's how we're meant to take this image of a table in the presence of the enemies. Um, Some people who have written on it, because it was written a couple thousand years ago, so there's a couple thousand years worth of writing out there to sift through, to understand it. And some think it's the idea of vanquished enemies being made to stand there and watch as you indulge. But I, I don't buy that either. I don't think this is a vindictive type of psalm. Um, My understanding and we'll unpack it is that somehow in the midst of the battles that we're going through The shepherd king the great host of this banquet Has something prepared for us even in the midst even in the midst of this crap that we're living in So here's my story about coming to understand the enemy you know who is this enemy that he's talking about and uh I have concluded that for me, my, my greatest enemy is most definitely myself. Um, maybe you've seen that at times in your life too. Back in early June, I was lamenting to our good friend Larry here, the horrible, horrible year I was having. And there are things that have happened that are horrible. One brother died, another one critically ill for months on end, um, marriages I know falling apart, friends betraying me, mental illness, physical illness. I mean, it has just been a collection of horrible circumstances in the last six months. And Larry looked at me and said, well, Fran, I think maybe God is using these people and circumstances as a crucible in your life. I had no idea what a crucible was, for one. It was a bad... Sure, it was a bad novel I had to read in high school, Um, and he did know what it was. He explained that, you know, you put the precious metal in the crucible, you heat it up. I got that, and then the impurities rise to the top, so you can skim them off. And so Larry looks me and says, "What are the impurities in your life that God is is trying to get rid of?" I I mean, I got pretty pissed. I was like, "Did you not hear what I just said? Death, illness." mental illness, betrayal, broken uh, man, what? When did this become about me? I was pissed, Larry. (laughs) But he's the kind of guy you kind of listen to. And uh, it did not take long in prayer for me to figure out what his words spoken in prophetic innocence really meant. Um, My greatest enemy is an overactive imagination. My imagination and my thought life can run rampant. Now, my mind doesn't go toward porn, where I know a lot of people find superficial and temporary relief from stress, but my mind does go straight through the scenario. And if it's a scenario of doom and gloom, and this is going to turn out the worst thing in the world, The problem with that is that then when I see you the next time, I'm going to already assume you are gonna follow through on what my imagination has told me. And I will look at people and I will think, you are gonna screw me. You are gonna hurt me. I'm avoiding you because my imagination has already played out the scene totally fictitiously. That's bad. What's even worse sometimes is my imagination paints an absolutely romantic, idealistic picture. You know, he, he will always be ready to listen and understand me. My friends will be available for me whenever and for, for whatever I need. My church will never let me down. And then, when the inevitable happens and people act like human beings, then my expectations are broken My feelings are unrighteously hurt, and my unrealistic expectations have again been the downfall of me. My mind, my thoughts can be my worst enemy. And so with all these circumstances that went on in my life, I had half of the world dead, half of the world hating me, and the other half of the world in perfection. And I know that doesn't add up, but that's how irrational I was thinking. The trouble is, my mind was deceiving me. Um, Whether I was thinking thoughts of doom and gloom or whether I was thinking of great perfection, my church is gonna let me down. Sometimes my friends don't pick up the phone. Sometimes he doesn't understand and not always do things turn out as bad. And I don't need to protect myself, defend myself and avoid those who my imagination says could potentially hurt me. The thing is, My shepherd is there in the midst of this. When my enemies surround me, my shepherd is there. His presence, his protection, his provision. That shows up over and over and over in the psalm. He prepares the table for me, he protects me against the enemy. When I go through the valley of death, the darkest valley where the predators are most likely to pounce, he is there with his presence, his protection and his provision. And I realized that in this instance as in many others, I need to surrender. We've been using the expression palms down recently. Jesse introduced us to that idea. Whatever you're clutching, whatever you're gripping, palms down. Release. Surrender. I knew after Larry's challenge Just where the Lord was pinpointing and Wanting me to drop and surrender because when these circumstances the genuinely bad circumstances genuinely tough times When they come my way It is really at his initiative It's always the shepherds initiative. He knows that the sheep are not smart enough to do anything for themselves So it's the shepherds initiative that is going to prevail and do the provision and do the protection. It's the shepherd's presence we have to go to. And I don't like that because I don't like surrender. I don't like giving up. I don't like the unknown. I would rather muddle through in my known dysfunctions than give up and potentially have God mess with my life. Because it's, it is true, sometimes when God steps in to heal what is broken and to heal what is hurt, he does it in ways and in circumstances that are not necessarily easy, but always for our best. I think back to a guy I mentored at seminary once, and every, every semester seminary students have to write these little learning plans about what spiritual trait they need to work on. And Alex told me he needed to work on decision-making. And his example seemed kind of paltry, really. He said, well, I, you know, I go into the store and I have to get snacks for the youth group, and man, I'm worried if I get this, then she won't like it. If I get that, and I, it, you know, somebody else won't like it, and what if, you know, what if this is on, and, and it could take me a half an hour to buy snacks for the youth group. But he wanted to get, he wanted to give that fretfulness and that inability to make decisions over to God. During that semester, Alex's wife went into premature labor and her life and the child's life were literally in danger. And the doctors were calling on him to make a decision for this, make a decision for that, snap decision, no time, gotta know what you want. Families are on his case on both sides and he's having to make decisions right and left. And God provided by the end of that experience and mom and baby were fine, Alex knew that he was capable of making decisions, but it was a crap way to learn that you could do it And I see that so often, you know I I put something out to the Lord and I say okay, Lord. I will let go I will drop this in your lap, and I want to tell him how to fix it and he's got different ideas on how to provide the healing that I need and what to do with what I have surrendered What he does is he invites me to come to the table He invites me to come to the table because, as it says in Ephesians 1, 19, the the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to believers. And he will work that power in us if we can let go of the grip we have on our own, my own, contriving manipulation, pious excuses, rationalizations, justifications, delay dawdling, if I can let go of... God can work this. He can deal with my enemies. The table he invites us to is a table of grace. And it is perfectly set to meet the needs of each one of us. This table is lavishly equipped. And there is no end to the grace he can pour out to us. There is no end to his patience, to his provision, of what we need. I used to play this little game with my kids. They'd come up and say, I'm hungry. And I would say, What do you mean you're hungry? I fed you yesterday. And they would laugh, Ha 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 ha, mommy, I'm hungry. And they would, may not get exactly what they wanted, but they knew they would get fed again that day and the next day and every day. And God's provision is like that. It's not a zero sum game. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, you used up your allotment for the week. He doesn't say, I gave you grace yesterday, and you wasted it. God's provision and his protection is so lavish, always present, never ending, without end, because he is God himself, the source of all grace and of all healing. This is what he's inviting us to. He is inviting us because he is always prepared as the shepherd. He is always watching. He Always knows what our needs will be and is always willing always willing to meet them. God even knows God knows it's Exhausting to resist temptation Have you ever realized that Do you ever kind of tire yourself out trying to be good? I mean genuinely, you know, maybe you're not supposed to drink and you're at a wine pairing party and it's exhausting or maybe You know there is somebody sitting there who's pretty dang good looking and you're doing everything to not notice I don't know what the temptation is. I don't know what the addiction is whatever it is I know that resisting temptation is exhausting and that's sometimes why we give in because we're just too darn tired We're too tired to resist anymore but to keep in mind that when we expend the energy of resisting sin, the shepherd is right there with the table constantly replenishing our needs. There is never a lack of energy on the shepherd's part, that he is unwilling, he's never unwilling to give us what we need and continue in that struggle with us as long as we're at the table. We must remain with the shepherd at the table. Apart from the shepherd's care and provision, we're, we're pretty much screwed. Pretty much. So The shepherd is aware of what we need, even before we are. Um, I was at, was at a church once, and the scenario unfolded this way. A pastor's wife walked into the senior pastor's office and said, I'm leaving. Leaving my husband, taking the kids. I have found out my husband is leading a totally double life. Tremendous debt, deep addiction to porn. It, he, shock to the whole church. He had been living a double life. Before the man was confronted, plans were put in place. Well, you know, if we have to give him a leave of absence, maybe even let him go, how will we provide for the family? We can't leave the wife and kids struggling. What kind of therapy and treatment will he need? Where should we recommend he go? What kind of financial help will he need? This guy's gonna need accountability for a long time. We need a few men to provide good accountability for him for the next couple years. And all those plans were put in place before the man was confronted. And I was was really impressed with that because I thought if God's people can put such forethought into what is needed for recovery, how much more so God is constantly thinking ahead as an alert and aware shepherd of where the dangers are coming from and what our needs are going to be. And through that analogy, it, it did give me more courage to say, okay, Lord, if you take away my tremendously fertile imagination and I have nothing to daydream or nightdream about, what are you gonna fill it with? I mean, because these thoughts are really comforting. I mean. I don't know if any of you have sort of a mind-type addiction, but you can get some good soothing out of a good but wrong imagination. And it was remarkable because committing to God that I would give up these daydreams, nightdreams, thoughts, imaginations of doom and gloom or perfection, it was as if God took my glasses off and put a new pair on And I had a clarity for prayer, and a clarity to see people, and a clarity to see reality and what relationships should be, not perverted, but real. Suddenly, the people I thought were against me were not, they weren't against me. That was all in my mind. The people I expected perfection from, I suddenly was willing to accept. They're humans. They're not out to screw me. They're just humans. And God answered my willingness to drop, drop my weapons, what I soothed myself with. When I dropped my weapons, God did provide. I had no idea what it would look like until I dropped them. And I think that's all he asks us to do is drop the weapons because the weapons we carry that we think we're fighting our battles with are only going to harm us if we can just drop that and put put our trust in the shepherd come to the table come to the table it is lavishly full with the grace we need the verse goes on to say that he will anoint me with oil and Kathy talked about last week how necessary it was for the shepherd to use oil and herbs and you know to make sure there was a basically a bug repellent for the sake of the sheep something had to keep the pests at bay Or the sheep could literally die from the invasion of bugs. The oil also, but God doesn't say, I slather you with oil. I spray you with oil. He anoints us with oil. And there's some amazing symbolism there. Kings were anointed, called out by God, God's hand on them, literally anointed with oil. I'm anointed with oil as if I'm royalty? Whoa priests were anointed with oil set apart purified sanctified for their task and I'm sure after that ceremony they felt The the weight and the seriousness of what had happened to them of that ceremony So to be anointed with oil is not some slapstick. Oh man you again You know go play (laughs) I think I would do with my kids and their sunscreen Um, but to be anointed as royalty I'm looking like crap and God is anointing me with oil and there was one commentator that took it even further He said he bathes me with oil and it's because I've seen this guy That it really meant a lot to me in 2007. I went to San Diego with Craig for an academic conference Note that it was in San Diego. Don't worry about the academic part of it at all. It was in San Diego So I went The first night of this conference, you know, big hall, um, probably sat about 500 people for a lecture, and mostly guys, not all guys, but mostly, and they're all greeting one another and, you know, doing their manly academic thing. Well, you know, what have you written this year, and where did you speak this year? And they're all doing their thing, and I'm in San Diego. That's what's important to me. But up front, in the front row, there was an old couple, there was this guy with his T-shirt tucked into his jeans and white sneakers, and sitting in a wheelchair next to him, a woman in like a little old grandma-type house coat, little moo type thing. And I looked at them and I thought, Oh my gosh, oh my gosh! Somebody invited their parents, and look what happened. That is so humiliating. Um, turns out, this guy with the jeans tucked in his T-shirt was the honored guest of the evening a man named John Gay, and he was being honored that night for a lifetime of service as an Old Testament scholar and writer and speaker and his, you know, I mean with with no embarrassment at all, he gets up to accept the, the, you know, award and give his little speech and explains that he was at a doctor's appointment with his wife, that was the woman in the wheelchair, and it ran late and they didn't have time to go home, so he just came. Not a, not a whit of embarrassment about it, so confident in himself, so humble, and uh, so of course I was uh, provoked to do a little stalking on Facebook about this guy, and it turns out he and his wife, well, when he was dating his wife 43 years earlier, she was diagnosed with MS, and they married anyway. Not knowing what the future would hold, what direction this disease would go in, and it had gone the worst possible way with her, she was there that night, unable to speak, unable to lift her head. So, down like that, for years had been unable to dress herself or feed herself, and he had faithfully provided and cared for her for 43 years as the disease progressed and got worsened. Um. I can only imagine in their life there might have been a few moments of impatience or Bitterness or anger or regret or remorse, you know boy. I mean if if he was as Distinguished and honored and accomplished as he was caring for an invalid wife. I wonder what could have happened If he didn't have that burden, but for 43 years he had kept his commitment to her And now he writes in his commentary on the Psalms that the shepherd has bathed him with oil. Here is a man who understands the necessity and the blessing of having God's anointing and God's provision, God's protection on a marriage that could have gone wrong at any point, God's provision for patient endurance for all that time to care for his wife. And so it really, really struck me to make those uh, connections over the years. The verse goes on to say, my cup overflows. And uh, it's a picture of, again, of amazing generosity. Now, we take wine and oil for granted. But in Israel, back then, if you had, you would need to have years of good crops, good conditions, and peace in order to get a vineyard that could produce enough wine to allow cups to overflow. That could produce enough oil on the olive trees to allow people to be bathed and slathered and anointed with oil. So there's, there's a picture here of tremendous peace. The shepherd has found a place of tremendous peace and protection right in the midst of the enemies. It's a great show of lavishness, divine indulgence, one person called it. And still the shepherd, as we go on to verse 6, still the shepherd is pouring out blessing. Your goodness and love follow me all the days of my life. Um, Where the sheep would go for pasture, for water, for rest, the predators would be right behind pursuing. And so for the shepherd to be able to provide protection in the best of places... Even as the enemy is surrounded, is another sign of the lavishness and accomplished accomplishedness. It's an amazing thing that God can do. Put it like that. You give me the words. And it's not that God is, you know, it isn't punishment and wrath that's pursuing us. It's love and grace as desperately as I try to rationalize, as I project, as I deny, as I do anything I can to avoid this great shepherd, he is pursuing me, not with a whip, not with a stick, but with love and mercy. His love is so intense, so constant, so intentional. He pursues me with love And this is the greatest paradox of all, I think, that um, in the place, I haven't mentioned this before, I should have been mentioning it every other minute, in the place of my greatest danger and my greatest vulnerability, that is the place where God's grace is strongest. That table is very intentionally laid in the presence of my enemies. Because where I am fighting the hardest battle against myself, against sin, against temptation, that is where the Lord is most present. He very intentionally places himself. God is not in denial about the difficulty of life and of thought control and of obedience and of... Loving one another and loving ourselves. He's not unaware of these difficulties and where I am the most vulnerable The most in danger is where he is the strongest. He is there The psalmist ends by saying I Will dwell in the house of the Lord forever And I again I kind of like something John Gay did as he translated he said I will return to the house of the Lord forever and uh, I identified with that because I can say, I'm going I'm to be perfect from now on. I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the next day I'm out the door chasing some other temptation or rabbit trail. But I need to return to the house of the Lord constantly. And when I return, I am being chased by God's love and grace to come to his table and rest and accept all that he is providing. House of the Lord might sound a little technical, might refer to the temple, might refer to the people of God, might refer to the presence of God. Hey, let's just take all three. Um, My conviction is we need to, when we see ourselves as as that picture showed, when the battle is surrounding and the table is set, drop the weapons, sit at the table find ourselves with God's people, because resisting sin, resisting temptation is not an easy thing to do. We need each other's support. And there's nothing magical about being in the church, but it is astounding what the atmosphere of love and support, that corporate feeling, what that can do. Your witness in being here to others around you is strengthening to them. We strengthen each other. So to be in the house of the Lord, in God's presence, with God's people, in public gatherings, I'm all for that. So, in review, what I've learned, as I publicly proclaim here, is that I do not need to, fe- I do not need to fear facing my enemies. Because God is well aware of my enemies, has my back, and is prepared, whether it's addiction, insecurity, duplicity, pride, whatever, whatever action, whatever attitude. What I need to do is come to the table, surrender, drop it, palms down. But the beauty in coming to God's table is, unlike Grandma, who says, clean up first and then you can sit down, God says, Come to the table, indulge, eat, be satisfied, bask in my presence. I don't have to clean up first to come to God. Being in God's presence will just, it will inspire me and it will aid me in changing what is sinful in my life but the surrender and coming to God has to come first. He treats me as royalty when I do that, not as, not as a problem, not as dirt. He never says, I fed you yesterday, ha-ha, but he just lavishly continues to provide. And the amazing thing in all of this is that it's when I am at my worst When that table is butting up right against the battle, that's where God is. He has intentionally put his table in the presence of my enemies so that at my worst moments of life can be the moments of his greatest glory. We're going to go into communion now. And during communion, the prayer cave is going to be open. If you want to go up to the prayer cave, there'll be folks there to pray for you. And it's not a huge crowd tonight. I would also urge you, maybe you don't know the people in the prayer cave. Maybe you feel a little funny. Grab the person you came with. Use the communion time as a time of prayer. Prayer for the courage to put out to God what you need to drop. Um, We're going to have a song, and I hope hope it's not too tame for you. I want to read some of the words as our prayer for our communion as we receive the body and blood of Christ and we will do that through take a piece of the bread or one of the gluten-free crackers dip it in the cup of juice it's always good to know that it's juice Um, be reminded of this from the song by Michael Card come to the table he's prepared for you the bread of forgiveness the wine of release Come to the table and sit down beside him. The Savior wants you to join in the feast. Come to the table and see in his eyes the love that the Father has spoken, and know you are welcome whatever your crime, whatever commandment you've broken. For he's come to love you and not to condemn, and he offers a pardon a peace. If you'll come to the table, you'll feel in your heart the greatest forgiveness the greatest release. I can say that definitively. I will stand on that. Amen.